Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, Hannah here. Guess what I have on my head right this moment? A Civics 101 baseball hat. Yeah. Guess where I want to see this baseball hat? In every state in America. Do you believe this is possible? Because I believe anything is possible in a land of civic participation and true democracy. Help me to help you keep that dream alive, all while looking incredibly cool. This hat is black with Civics 101 written in white. It is everything I have ever wanted in a hat, just understated support for the show that wants nothing more than to keep the promise of participatory democracy and constitutional freedoms alive for this nation's inhabitants. I would wear this anywhere, and I hope you wear it everywhere. You can snag it when you make a contribution of five bucks a month at civics101podcast.org. And guess what? That gift will be matched. Matched dollar for dollar. So get a hat, wear a hat, keep this show alive, both literally and sartorially speaking. Also keep our life-giving but powerful sun out of your precious eyes and face. Again, five bucks a month at civics101podcast.org. Wear the hat. Tell the world you're fighting the good fight. I either have a cold or this is a really bad deep fake. <laughs> I'm Anna McCarthy. <laughs> Do you know what genuinely chills me? Maybe I fervently believe something that is not true. And I probably do. I'm probably guilty of that and I don't even know it. Like, what have I defended in my life that is simply false? Or worse, what have I defended that is indefensible? You know, that is a mortifying thought. Yeah, it shakes me to the core when I'm disabused of myths that I believed were true. Like that people's names got changed at Ellis Island, for example. Or something, you know, way more serious, like saying there's a human trafficking ring let out of the basement of a pizza place. Yeah, like that. Which we're going to talk a bit about, all in good time, because the name of the game today, it's lies. Some of the most brazen acts of voter fraud to date. Sworn affidavit saying people are forging signatures. Growing examples and, frankly, affidavits of ballot irregularities and outright illegality. Tampering allegations to the the dead people voting. We don't know how many votes were stolen on Tuesday night. We don't know anything about the software that many say was rigged. We don't know. We ought to find out. 
This is Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. And today we are talking about one of the most insidious and uncontainable obstacles facing any American who wishes to vote their conscience in this year's midterm election. We're talking about misinformation. And just to be crystal clear, because sometimes I feel like the word misinformation actually sort of skirts the truth of the matter. Misinformation is false information. Like you said, lies. Okay, I did use the word lies. And honestly, that was a little misinformation-y. Because in truth, doesn't a lie imply intention? Yes, a lie implies an active choice. There is an intent to mislead somebody else. So misinformation is actually a little bit different. I'm going to take a second to just set up some definitions first. So I'm going to use both misinformation and and disinformation during these podcasts. This is Samantha. My full name is Samantha Lai, L-A-I. I am a research analyst at the Brookings Institution Center for Technology Innovation. Okay, and I've heard the term disinformation, but I pretty much always equated the two as being the same thing. These are slightly different terms. So misinformation refers to false information that people might promote or spread, not intentionally to deceive someone, because often a lot of us might see things on the internet and think that it's real, but turns out it's not. Disinformation, however, people who spread it often spread it intentionally to deceive people. So that's the key difference between these two terms. And that would be the lie part of the information chain? Correct. And probably the bad actor part. Especially when it comes to elections, disinformation is a purposefully misleading statement or claim that is conjured up in order to make people believe something other than the truth. And often to make them believe it fervently in order to influence an election's outcome. There are a couple kinds of misinformation and disinformation that bad actors can post to confuse or discourage voters. So one approach would be to spread false information on voting dates and polling locations. So for example, during the 2020 elections, a tweet on Super Tuesday targeted supporters of Kentucky candidate Matt Bevin and said inaccurately, Bevin supporters don't forget to vote on Wednesday, November 6th, which is the day after the election. And that wasn't a mistake. Nope. And I'll take it that tweet wasn't from the people who wanted Bevin elected. You take it correctly. This tactic comes in many forms. It's subtle. Tweaking a single piece of information, often in a way that seems helpful, in an attempt to keep people away from the polls. Sometimes it's, hey, text this number to vote by text. You text that number your vote, you probably get a, your vote has been submitted, good for you, text back. Easy, it's done. Now, I want to make very clear, right here, right now, that there is not a state in the nation that permits voting by text. This is not real. You may also see news that, you know, candidate X has dropped out of the election last minute. Oh, what a shame. Or candidate Y has already won. There's no need to vote. All of it is made up, all of it designed to keep you from voting. Another approach here in terms of messaging is intimidation, which uh, often primarily targets historically marginalized groups. So this includes threats of people bringing guns to the polls or law enforcement presence at polling places. So, for example, before the 2018 elections, ICE had to publicly refute rumors on social media that they would be conducting enforcement operations at polling places. 
We also have messaging exploiting common doubts, particularly among Black and Latino voters, on the efficacy of the political process. So this can include messages on how oh, the system doesn't work for you, your vote doesn't matter, and other attempts to just disenfranchise voters of color. And this echoes interference strategies deployed in 2016 by the Kremlin-backed Internet Research Agency, who disproportionately targeted African Americans during their interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential elections. I feel like you covered this in our episode on election security. There's a difference between how messed up the system actually is and how messed up bad actors want you to believe the system is. And like Samantha said, for many people or groups, this type of disinformation is specifically designed to play on totally legitimate and experience-based fears and concerns. Misinformation is 100% tied in with how the world works because you have to have some doubt in order to be convinced. Like, if I looked at you and was like, did you know that the sky is actually green? You would simply say no, because you can verify with your own eyes that, that is not the case. Misinformation, the reason was what makes it so effective. It's because it exploits people's common doubts and common fears. For example, looking at misinformation targeting historically marginalized groups, why is it so effective and why is it so devastating and why is that a civil rights concern? Because historically marginalized groups have been historically disenfranchised and there are a lot of narratives that also carry some grain of truth in it in sense of their underrepresentation. And when historical people are exposed to these messages, that has carries a very different impact. And so that is why when we see right now that there's a heightened level of distrust towards our government, towards news agencies, there's a lot of resentment and polarization where you have people turning to alternative news sources, not trusting mainstream news sources. It's so pernicious, Hannah, this idea that you might be targeted with disinformation that carries a grain of truth. And that grain of truth is rooted in historical disenfranchisement. Right. Among groups of color, groups who might have barriers to physically accessing the polls. Now, I want to introduce someone here. This is Peter Adams. You can introduce me as the either the head of research and design at NLP or the senior vice president of research and design. NLP? The News Literacy Project, which is a company entirely dedicated to teaching people how to separate fact from fiction. So those people who already feel underserved by the system, they are going to be increasingly vulnerable as we near election day. Someone telling you that you know your your vote's going to be changed or lost uh, or subverted if you vote by mail, and that's a particularly pernicious rumor because it winds up disenfranchising people who maybe can't vote that day, decide not to vote by mail, or they think they're going to vote on election day and they don't make it to the polls. Um, there are also rumors that, you know, localized rumors, like the, the lines are impossibly long at this polling place when they're not. You know, just view all that with a grain of salt. What about the other kind of falsehood? Not the kind designed to further disenfranchise marginalized groups, but the kind designed to stoke a different sort of fear and anger. Well, why don't we start with a major fear and major anger? North Carolina man was arrested Sunday in Washington, D.C. after a shooting that he says was motivated by an Internet conspiracy theory. Uh, you know, I think that the incidents like the one in Cincinnati um, or, you know, at, at Comet Ping Pong um, back in 2016, I think the, the pizzeria in Washington are tragic and, and alarming and good reminders that even though they're not exceedingly common, that this kind of stuff is, is very serious, right? It can result in people taking real action. Edgar Welch, who went to the pizzeria based on QAnon 
falsehoods, right? Thinking that there was uh, something nefarious happening in the basement there when in fact there's no basement in the building. You know, brought a rifle, shot it once and figured out there was no basement and surrendered. In this case, it was much more tragic in Cincinnati, right? But this person took action at an FBI office based on something they believe about, you know, the recent uh, raid on Mar-a-Lago. Speaking of that search of the former president's Florida home, it has angered many of his supporters, including a man who tried to force his way into an FBI field office in Cincinnati yesterday. Police say the man was armed. So, you know, again, I think these are reminders of how serious it can be, but we shouldn't lose sight of the everyday impact on ordinary folks who sort of fall down rabbit holes with the best of intentions, looking for answers, trying to interpret complex realities but they fall for for simplified narratives. Um, Conspiracy theories are very attractive because they give people kind of a good, bad version of the world. As complicated as they can be, they're very simple at their base. So let's talk about other examples, like a stolen election, or even the idea of a poll worker tampering with ballots or voter fraud. These are still examples of conspiracies born of disinformation, which is then followed by the spreading of misinformation. And a lot of them involve being unhappy with election results and or not understanding how elections work. Lo and behold, the simple answer is provided to you on a silver platter. The disinformation that vindicates you and gives an appealing explanation for why things seem a certain way. I think, you know, the biggest concern is just just misperceptions about fraud or misrecognized things that are totally normal parts of, of elections being perceived as fraud because people have now been primed to believe that fraud is common when it's not. They are primed to believe it's easier to pull off than it is. Um, And it has an impact on election workers. It has an impact on people who might be designated agents who deliver ballots to boxes from, say, nursing homes, who might be confronted by people who have decided they're going to monitor those boxes for anyone dropping more than one ballot. And Peter says you also have to consider the motivation of the bad actor, the person at the top of the disinformation to misinformation pipeline. Of all the allegations of improprieties, none of them were really borne out by evidence. You know, case by case by case, especially in, I mean, again, these tended to cluster in swing states, right? So number one, that was an attempt to to sort of move electoral votes in key places. There's zero evidence at the end of the day that there was any kind of significant voter fraud that could come anywhere close to changing the the outcome in, in any given state, much less the election overall. So I think that's a really key point. All the audits that have taken place, all of the reviews, all of the accusations uh, have all come to naught. I mean, the evidence is just not there and, and evidence matters. You know, most experts who are looking at election disinformation believe that we're just going to see a lot of the same narratives get pushed because they've now taken root almost as conventional wisdom among among some folks. And so they're still very effective. All right. So we've got bad actors with appealing ideas running rampant. And you're telling me it only gets worse around an election. So what are we supposed to do? What, what are we supposed to look for? How do we separate the lies from the truth? That's coming up after the break.
We'll be right back, but before we go, we want to let you know about another subject that Civics 101 cares deeply about, the Supreme Court. We have done many deep dives into how the Supreme Court works and episodes on the most significant cases in U.S. history, like Brown v. Board of Education, Loving v. Virginia, and Citizens United. You can find those stories and so much more at civics101podcast.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD, streaming audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring. Full throttle is half the fun. Where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, We are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead. With Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. We're back. This is Civics 101, and we're talking disinformation and misinformation. Which, as Samantha Lai told us earlier, is what we call disinformation when it gets spread by people who believe it. A lot of this, Nick, it is, of course, going down on social media. Speaking of Samantha, here she is again. Social media is a wild, wild west. So even really drawing the line, sometimes it's really hard. Like maybe the first person who posted this intended for this to be disinformation and the other people spreading it 
are misinformed and they don't intend to deceive people, but they very genuinely believe that this is the case. So it's a little bit of both in a lot of cases. It's often kind of hard to be completely clear about how it happens, but both can be damaging and hurtful and could mislead people into making certain decisions or not showing up on the right day to vote, and that's a problem. And here's Peter Adams from the News Literacy Project again. Influencers will take individual incidents or make a claim, and that will spread down to their followers, obviously, and those followers then look for that, right? So if you're following somebody with a massive, uh, who's massively influential on social media, and they say, this is happening at polling places, you may go to polling places and look for that. Um, But also people who provide that at the grassroots level and share it, those are filtering up and having an influence on the influencers. So it's not just a top-down influencer to people on the ground dynamic. It's also folks in polling places all across the country creating videos that are then filtering up and forming these sort of false evidence collages, if you will, on the part of of influencers who then strengthen their, their false claims and convictions. So there's a whole ecosystem of sustaining and growing the lies, like a little garden. And the kind of lie you run into? It has all to do with what corner of the internet you inhabit. For example, I am a certain type of millennial, so I am on Instagram. And Instagram has figured out that I will engage with content involving East and South Asian cooking, uh, running, and moody bodies of water during the fall. What? So I get a lot of information specific to, say, dumpling recipes, uh, running posture, and where to camp in New England. So it feels like I am an expert on that niche. But in actual fact, I have no idea whether these people are cooks, running experts, or have ever been camping. I think I know a lot because I consume their content. But what's the source of that information? There are a lot of people who sometimes believe certain things because they're like, oh, I've seen this on social media 20 times, 30 times. It's not just one thing. And that's another problem altogether with just the information ecosystem at large where you can be very solidly convinced or because of the way social media algorithms work, they give you what you generally want to see that you end up seeing a lot of the same content. So you might end up doing as much research as you would for buying a new computer And as far as you're concerned, you're doing a lot of research. But if you're stuck in a certain corner of the internet, that experience can be very, very different from someone else. And that's why it's also sometimes really, really hard for people to kind of come to terms that they've been conned, that all of this that they've seen, all the research that they think they've done, they've actually been misled. And then you, Hannah, rather innocently, might go out and tell people how to make their dumplings and run around and where to find the best lakes. But it could literally be the worst advice ever. Yeah. And I've actually, I've probably done that, honestly. The same goes for election information, except in that case, it is far, far more likely to be purposeful disinformation that you are consuming. Because so many people stand to gain from influencing who votes and who gets elected. These algorithms collect a lot of data about your online activity, your browsing activity, purchasing history, location data, how long you spend on, like everything. So in terms of micro-targeting, when someone like a campaign or even like a commercial actor sets up an ad campaign, you can choose certain things that you can target someone with. So for example, zip code, gender, so on and so forth. Peter reminded me, as obvious as it may seem, what social media is. It is a by and large 
free platform that monetizes engagement, designed to get instant reaction. As in, hey, oh, cool, running tip, I'll take that and I'll share that. And then instant scrolling, done with that tip, onto the next. See the stuff you like, engage, go scroll for more stuff you like. Like, engage, scroll. Like, engage, scroll. A little fraud here, a little ballot stuffing there. You know what they say, if something's free, you're the product. That's their business model, it's what they do. But it can be sort of invisible, right? We can sort of lose track of, of how that all works. And it's tempting to like and share recklessly or too quickly. And it's also easy to think, well, this is just a tap on a screen, right? It's a like, it's a share. I'm not, you know, and I think a lot of people share things that they're, they're sort of thinking, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but, you know, whatever, it's interesting. It might be true. The downstream effect of that, two, three, four layers out, you share with someone who shares with someone and they take action based on something that's false, you know, can, can have a real uh, impact. Good morning, Robin. This case shows how fake news can lead to a dangerous situation. Edgar Welch, 28, of Salisbury, North Carolina, has been arrested and charged with assault with a dangerous weapon. And police say that Welch told them that he showed up at the D.C. pizza restaurant to get to the bottom of what appears to be an utterly bogus story about child abuse promoted on the Internet. How scary was the situation? He allegedly pointed the gun in the direction of an employee and fired the weapon inside the restaurant. I'm thinking too, Hannah, about the disinformation that looks and sounds real, like a step beyond the clickbaity meme or headline, the picture or the video of something happening. That kind of thing must be harder to be skeptical about. We're all sort of evolutionarily hardwired to believe our senses, to believe what we see and hear. It, it can be hard to resist that, that allure, especially if you're inclined to, to believe that or, or you want to believe it already. You know, video-based evidence or photographic evidence that feels compelling and feels convincing um, often may not be, especially when it's from a user-generated source. Sometimes it's a real undoctored image or video with a misleading caption. Sometimes it is a little more than that. Deep fakes, which use artificial intelligence technology, or even just basic video editing, but those aren't really like they like anything to like make images or videos of fake events that haven't actually happened with politicians faces like put on them and you can see how that would cause that would enable the spread of fake information i'm going to show you some magic it's the real thing (laughs) i mean uh it's all the real thing It looked a lot like Tom Cruise, but it was not Tom Cruise. He's not in that video in any way. It's what's called a deep fake. There are the bots. Bots and trolls. So bots are automated and trolls are real users, and they can just generally be used to spread fake news about candidates or election details. The geofencing. The what? Geofencing. So how this works is that when a mobile device enters or exits a virtual boundary set up around a geographical location, that information will be collected. So if you have physically one in and out of a place and it has there's like a virtual boundary set, they will know that you have 
been there. So that technology was used、um, for the 2020 elections by a private company called Catholic Vote, which set up this boundary around a church to target churchgoers with pro-Trump messaging. And then there's. You know, every other way people can influence you. There are TV networks. There is radio. There are podcasts on Spotify. All of that, people we like, depending on the social groups people are in, depending on their personal experiences and the communities they live in. All of this, all of this interacts together in a perfect storm, which is why it's incredibly difficult to disassemble in some ways. All right, Hannah. You have thoroughly flooded this episode with your information campaign. That's my job. Now, give me the antidote. What are we supposed to do about it? In terms of on a personal level, what you can do, I think, to inoculate yourself against mis and disinformation is to first keep in mind that confirmation bias is a thing. We're all people. We have opinions. We are all vulnerable to. Thinking certain ways, especially if we see certain information that aligns with our worldviews. So it's like whenever you see something online that you're like, "Oh my gosh!" Like before spreading it, take a second, take a look, Google it, see if any other reputable news source has reported on it. If it's a one-off tweet or if it's a meme, make sure to double check and see who else is talking about this, and you can kind of tell from who else is talking about this and who else is reporting on this. What's going on there? Another useful part, especially in the context of voting, is always relying on official information on government websites as to details of where you're going to vote, what's open, what's closed, what are the hours. Don't rely on someone else's information. Always make sure to go back to the source and always recognize that every source has a motive to convince you of something. Which I'll acknowledge is more work. It is more work than scrolling and liking and sharing and consuming exactly what you're fed. Which is why I appreciate Peter's take on this. His whole thing is, hey, people are actively trying to take away your right. So yes, you do have to work a little more. Don't let someone sort of hijack your civic voice by misinforming you and disinforming you. You know, no one wants to be misled. No one wants to hold false beliefs. And you know, I think we all have to be more vigilant than ever on those fronts because there are more ways for people to to try to manipulate us than ever before. I feel like there's an elephant in the room here, Hannah. Can we make it like a non-political animal? I feel there's a right whale here in the room, Hannah. Let's talk about it. Disinformation, misinformation, social media targeting, geofencing. It sounds like you're recommending vaccines, but what about curing the disease instead? There are a couple government agencies dedicated to combating dis and misinformation. Most of this was pretty recent. There is the U.S. Department of State's Global Engagement Center that proactively monitors and addresses foreign adversaries' disinformation attempts. The Department of Homeland Security's Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency during the last 2020 election cycle did invaluable work protecting America's election infrastructure and finding ways to centralize information and. To make sure to keep tabs on what kind of rumors and misinformation is going on, a lot of these are still in progress because there's a lot of bipartisan disagreement over the definitions of disinformation and who should be the one to say what is and is not disinformation. So that's another can of worms altogether, but there is work being done. <laughs> 
So the agencies are being created. Nonprofits are addressing the problem. The public is constantly being warned about disinformation from those who are fighting the good fight. There are conversations happening about how to handle dis and misinformation. What I find really interesting about all of this, Nick, is that these disinformation campaigns wouldn't work unless people really cared about these issues, really cared about politics, really cared about elections. Now, there may not be a lot that all of America agrees on right now, but deep down, I think I can safely say that we are all Holden Caulfield when it comes to being lied to. Nobody likes a no-good phony, and few people really want to be one. And coming up, we are going to talk about another kind of manipulation. It's a little thing called propaganda. That's after a break. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Uh, what did you say your favorite card was again? Uh, six of diamonds. I thought you said it was the jack of hearts. No, I didn't say the <laughs> All right, I'm going to do a um, a magic trick. Do me a favor. Uh, cut that deck anywhere you want. Okay. Now, I'm going to um, just leave these here until the end of the recording. I'm not going to touch them. All right? Okay. This, by the way, is one of the first tricks I ever learned. And if for anybody out there listening, I'm a terrible, terrible magician. But this is a technique, Hannah, called a force. What's a force? A force is when someone like takes a card believing that they had a choice, but they don't. I told you to cut the deck randomly and you take the card you cut to, but I'm forcing you to take the card I want. Choice is an illusion here, Hannah. And it doesn't just happen with cards. Over there. Interesting stories about dead people voting. Wow, amazing. Uh, what free and fair elections we all have confidence in. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common on social media. I think it was one of the coldest Julys we've had in some while. Oh, wow. I don't know if that's going to really fly with climate change. Global cooling. Right. Industry is a double step to supply the sinews of safety. 
the armaments of war that the battle world must have if democracy is to survive. You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And today we are talking about propaganda. Propaganda is compliance gaining. It's a kind of force. Essentially, propaganda is the an effort by someone to get you to think what they want you to think. Every time a king put on a robe, an ermine robe, it was an act of propaganda. It's persuasion without consent. It denies people their free will. It denies people their ability to consent or choose to believe what you have compelled them to believe. And it's anti-democratic. And it's a lot easier than persuasion. My name is John Maxwell Hamilton. I'm a professor at Louisiana State University and a scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. My name is Jennifer Murcia, and I'm a professor at Texas A&M University. I teach classes in political communication, propaganda, and the dark arts of communication. Hold on. Jennifer's class is called The Dark Arts of Communication? It is. It explores propaganda, demagoguery, and how our brains process information and how those natural processes lead to cognitive weaknesses that are exploited by dark arts techniques. And yes, that includes compliance gaining, which is forcing someone to act in a particular way. All right. I got to learn all about that. But first, can we just get a textbook definition of propaganda? Absolutely. Propaganda is a piece of information designed to get people to think or act in a certain way. But John's got a better definition than that. There's a wonderful definition that was done at the end of World War I, and I read it to you because it's a superb definition. Those engaged in propaganda may genuinely believe the success will be an advantage to those whom they address, but the stimulus to their action is their own cause. The differentia of propaganda is that it is self-seeking, whether the object be worthy or unworthy, intrinsically or in the minds of its promoters. Let me try to say that another way so I can make sure that I understand it, okay? Mm -hmm. People who make propaganda may feel they're doing something good for everyone, but what makes it propaganda is that it has a goal to fulfill, regardless of whether the person creating it thinks it's good or bad. I think the closest thing in my mind is advertising, right? Like your goal is to sell toothpaste. So you make commercials saying this toothpaste is amazing. Right. And it can be amazing toothpaste, but that is irrelevant. You may think it tastes like chalk, but if you're hired to make an ad for it, you're not going to put that in it. And I want to be clear. Propaganda is not the same thing as just persuading somebody of something. Persuasion is an invitation. You invite someone else to think like you do, to value the same values that you value um, in the same way, to remember or forget history. And you acknowledge that that person has free will, they have a mind of their own, and they may choose to change their mind and agree with you, but then again, they may not. Um, persuasion is really hard. It's very difficult to get someone to change their mind. We know that um If people are invested in a topic, if they're knowledgeable about a topic, then they're very resistant to changing their opinions. But as Jennifer said, compliance gaining is different. It is, and it's a lot easier to do than persuading someone to change their mind. 
We're going to touch on other kinds of propaganda, but today I really want to focus on governmental propaganda. Not toothpaste, but policy. When I think of propaganda in America, the first thing that comes to mind are like World War posters, right? Uncle Sam saying, I want you. Depictions of the U.S. and our allies being these heroic figures versus the grotesque, often racist interpretations of various enemies as beasts. But are there any examples of it from earlier in U.S. history? Oh, absolutely. Jennifer said that a document near and dear to our hearts could be viewed as propaganda. Which one? Perhaps the most important um, example of propaganda in that sense in the founding generation, the founding era, is the Federalist Papers. Oh, yeah, I can see that. It's 85 essays selling people our proposed Constitution. The Federalist Papers were written with one purpose, which was to um, get the citizens of the state of New York to agree to adopt the Constitution. Uh, And there was a lot of anti-Federalist sentiment in New York. Um, And so they wrote the Federalist Papers as a joint project, but also as a propaganda campaign. They, by the way, refers to James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and sort of John Jay, who didn't even use their real names on these papers. They wrote them under the pseudonym Publius. And they even talked about it during the Constitutional Convention when they talked about how they would get the Constitution ratified and the method by which they would ratify the Constitution. Um, They said very explicitly, if you understood how to read what they were saying, um, that experience will dictate public opinion, that we will lead, (laughs) we will lead the others, um, you know, to adopt this thing. And so they wanted it to have the approval of the public because they thought that was necessary for the legitimacy of the new government. But they also wanted to make sure that they led the public to approve it. Um, And so the whole ratification of the Constitution is a fascinating propaganda campaign. And we think of these essays, the Federalist Papers, as their own thing. But the Federalists, the ones who were pushing the new Constitution, had lots of tools at their disposal to make that happen. It's part of this whole public relations slash propaganda campaign that was run by the Federalists. So counties and in some states, they elected people and they gave them binding instructions. So we will elect you to the state ratifying convention as long as you agree to vote no. And then they voted yes. (laughs) Or newspaper editors refusing to publish anti-federalist news articles or opinions. And if they did publish one anti-federalist one, they would publish five responses to it. Or the people who controlled the postal service were federalists. And so they would disappear letters that urged anti-federalist sentiment. And there are more examples of possible early American propagandists, including Thomas Paine and Samuel Adams selling the revolution itself. Uh, Sam Adams produced an event every year called the Boston Massacre Oration, reminding everybody what happened on that day. This guy pushed that war. Wow. Some people even think that he stood behind a tree in the Battle of Lexington and fired the first shot um, (laughs) to get like the war going as an agent provocateur. Last quick thing about Sam Adams. He wrote pro-revolution articles under no fewer than 25 different pseudonyms. 
And Thomas Paine wrote the pamphlet Common Sense to persuade people to support the revolution. There were plays, op-eds, public orations, catchy slogans. Like no taxation without representation? Yeah, or liberty or death. It was an onslaught. However, providing information is just one side of propaganda. The other side of propaganda that we have to keep in mind is that propaganda is also the suppression of information. You want to get people to think things by telling them what to think, and you want to keep them from thinking about things that get in the way of your message. So John Adams, as president, passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, which put some journalists uh, out of business as an effort to suppress information that he didn't like. So... Sure, we have lots of examples historically. So propaganda has been a part of this country pretty much since the founding, right? Right. But we didn't use that word until much later. Nick, was there a sort of a defining era that established like new American propaganda? Yeah. Uh, Here is John Maxwell Hamilton again. He's the author of Manipulating the Masses, Woodrow Wilson, and the Birth of American Propaganda. What changes with World War I is a recognition of the importance of public opinion, the rise of mass literacy, and the rise of mass publications, which meant people began to be able to more readily come to their own conclusions based on third-party writing and thinking. And, and a third party not being your neighbor, but being someone who was a putative expert. The reaction of the government had to be then, how do we control that? When the war came uh, in April of 1917, even before the law was passed for conscription, Wilson, a week later, created something called the Committee on Public Information. The Committee on Public Information, the CPI. A committee? Yeah. What branch was it under? It is under the executive branch, and it's an independent agency. So, like, the EPA or the FCC, the Fed, etc. Right. Is it still around? Nope. Uh, It only lasted until 1919, but it had a massive effect in those two years. What was the CPI doing? Well, their initial goal was to censor information that they thought could pose a risk to national security. But bills giving them that power to censor never passed in Congress. But it had all kinds of referred authorities to censor because it worked with some censoring organizations like the post office. The post office censored the mail. Oh, they did. You could be fined for sending anti-government, anti-war or even anti-liberty bonds mail. And while the CPI didn't explicitly censor, they took a different tack it became very aggressive about providing information. And it did it with every means of communication possible. Posters, ads, a news service, the list goes on, movies. And so they they were providing messages to the public continuously. They made their own movies? Yeah. They produced their own movies. They also uh, vetted movies. Now they couldn't censor movies in the United States per se, but movie theaters were very worried about being shut down because there were lots of savings programs in the war. For example, you don't want to heat certain facilities because you want to save coal. So the movie theaters saw themselves being very vulnerable. So they would they would allow the CPI to opine on movies they were showing because they wanted to be on the right side of the government. This is an example of the referred authority they had. They also wanted to be able to export movies because that's how they made money. This is the beginning of the United States having a very strong influence on foreign movie production. That's why our movies tend, you know, to go abroad. The head of the CPI was a man named George Creel, who referred to their work as, quote, 
the world's greatest adventure in advertising. And they advertised the heck out of the war. Ad executives, journalists, actors, directors, artists, famous artists like N.C. Wyeth, all of them worked in the committee to sell the war to the American people. But the biggest, possibly most effective arm of the CPI was a group of 75,000 volunteers called the Four Minute Men. All right, who were the Four Minute Men? The Four Minute Men was a brilliant idea, which was that during the changing of movie theater films, reels, leading citizens in whatever community you happen to be in would stand up and say something that they wanted the audience to think or do. In the case of doing, for example, they would get up and say, you need to donate binoculars to the Navy. The Navy didn't have enough binoculars. So, and thousands of binoculars were donated. Another case of doing would be to buy Liberty bonds to support the war. They were everywhere, Hannah. They weren't just at the movies. You'd take your kids to a Boy Scout meeting or you'd go to a church and somebody you know, a member of your community, stands up and says, Before we start today, I just want to thank all the folks out there who mailed a candy bar to their boys on the front last week. You go to a county fair and there's a guy dressed up like Uncle Sam and he's telling you to buy war bonds. There's a mandatory all-staff meeting at work where someone just stands up and waxes poetic on the pride he felt registering for the draft. You, you can't go about your day without being told how important you are to the war effort. So were these people government employees? No, no. I mean, they worked for the government. But they were volunteers. They were not paid. That is fascinating, right? That you have these people who you trust in your circle, in your community, giving these four-minute speeches on behalf of the government. Yeah, and not just people in your community, also famous people like Charlie Chaplin or Douglas Fairbanks Jr. These four-minute men were everywhere. And to your point about, you know, it's in your community, there were four-minute men who gave speeches in Yiddish, Sioux, Dutch, dozen other languages. Uh, And they sounded inspired. They sounded improvisational. They appeared to be local and they appeared to be spontaneous. But in fact, they were highly scripted by Washington. They had themes every week. They were given instructions on what they were supposed to say. They could improvise, but they were given a, uh, they were given a very clear mandate. And they were monitored. There were people secretly monitoring your seemingly improvised speech. Gotta make sure you stay on message, McCarthy. And the Four Minute Men got instructions every week like... This week's theme is buy war bonds. And don't say phrases like, we all have to do our part. That's hackneyed and doesn't have meaning anymore. And at the same time, members of the CPI were always looking out for journalists and activists who got in the way of their messaging. And and maybe this is a lesson for people who care about democracy. Political leaders like to find ways to fence back information that they don't like. In the case of Trump, the phrase that he used was fake news. Because they are the fake, fake, disgusting news. In the case of the CPI, they had a phrase called enemy talk. And they actually ran a syndicated column called enemy talk. And the idea was these are things that you shouldn't believe and the things that enemy wants you to believe. And and if you hear somebody saying this kind of thing, and they'd have real examples, that's because the enemy planted it. So earlier, Jen said that compliance gaining is easier than persuasion. And this, I think, is a pretty clear example. If someone says something you don't like, it is not hard to counter with, yeah, well, that sounds like enemy talk. Yeah, get that guy. 
Well, I think the lesson for all of us needs to be, and it's a bipartisan lesson, when we hear people telling us that something shouldn't be talked about or thought about, or a blanket phrase that tries to negate a classification of information, our antenna should go up because it's a shortcut to appeal to our emotions. World War I ended on November 11th, 1918. The committee was disestablished a year later. But before we make the jump to modern-day propaganda, John told me that his intent in studying the CPI was not to demonize the people who worked in it. So, you know, the story of the CPI really is a story of good people doing bad things. But the people who were in the CPI were largely reformers. In fact, they were all reformers. Uh, They were progressives who wanted a better country and had been using their talents uh, to make improvements. But the seductive nature of propaganda being what it is, they started taking shortcuts in our democratic procedures and decided it was better to get people to believe the right thing than to promote debate. So, Nick, the four minute men approach is not, as far as I know, happening today. Nobody is standing up right before a Marvel movie to expound on inflation or student loan forgiveness. And also we're not going places. We don't gather in sort of public venues as much as we used to, even before COVID. But it's still happening to us whether we like it or not. Both John and Jennifer said that one character trait of propaganda is that it is non-consensual. And it's not necessarily the government trying to sell us on a war. It's political parties selling us policy. It's companies selling us their product. You name it. And now that we live in a digital world alongside our analog world, we are very, very vulnerable. Here's Jennifer Murchia again, author of Demagogue for President, the rhetorical genius of Donald Trump. And she's going to lay out three vulnerabilities that propagandists exploit. Propagandists are really, really good at exploiting vulnerabilities, whether it's vulnerabilities in information or vulnerabilities in terms of how our cognitive processes work. So, you know, most of our information that our brain uh, receives is processed precognitively without us knowing. Our brain processes things in different ways. So there's like the quick instinctive reaction, and then there's the more plodding, deliberative consideration. And Jen said to be aware when you're receiving information that appeals to first impressions, that that makes you respond immediately. There are strategies that applications use and platforms. Um, You know, there are people on the Internet who talk really fast and there's a reason why they do that. You know, there's a reason why memes are so successful. It's very difficult to get people to think about what you want them to think about. Um, you know, it's cognitively taxing and we are cognitive misers. And so the peripheral route to persuasion is that system one um, approach, which says, you know, people will use heuristic cues to decide things and they won't even be aware that they're deciding something. A second technique that Jennifer pointed out is called amygdala hijacking, taking advantage of how our brains process fear. If you were watching the news during the George Floyd protests, uh, you might have seen images of looting or burning cars or destruction or whatever. Chaos in America, violent clashes erupting across the country. 
One person shot and killed at a Black Lives Matter protest in Austin, Texas. And those images would be playing continuously anytime they talked about those protests. Um, whether or not any of those images were relevant to that protest or that day's news. And so what we know is that most, and I mean a great majority, 93 to 94% of those protests were peaceful, no violence at all. But the perception that people have is that they were incredibly violent. And that's because of the way that the media can cultivate reality. They're going to show the most dramatic footage they have of the protest. They're going to show, especially if they're against the protest, they're going to show what looks violent, what looks scary. That's going to draw people's attention in. And your brain isn't analyzing the information critically as you're watching the news, right? You are um, influenced by scary, stressful music. You are, you are influenced by the stressful tone of voice. How do you counter amygdala hijacking? Jennifer says, just notice it. Notice how your body is feeling when you watch certain news pieces. And if your heart is racing, you can stop if you want to. But even that can be kind of hard. It's in a way even addicting, right? Because you're like, what should I be afraid of? I got to turn on that TV channel to find out. And then it keeps you there, you know, on the edge of your seat and it and it you, you stay through the commercials, <laughs> right? Like I got to, you know, wait and see what's going to happen. What's the scary thing? And the third vulnerability that propagandists capitalize upon goes back to what we were saying about sort of the public sphere, our need for social connections. Human beings absolutely have to be around and connected to other people. Fundamentally, we will go mad if we are not. <laughs> um, it, you know, we we have right now a, um, a crisis of loneliness where people claim, you know, that they don't have any friends. They don't they don't feel connected to society. All of that creates distrust. Um, the less social interaction we have with others, the less we trust others. Um, it's a social glue, right? It's a social lubricant. It it allows for the government to remain trusted and stable. We have a crisis and distrust in government right now. And so our connections are absolutely necessary. They're crucial to us as human beings and they're crucial to society, but they're also very, very easily exploited, right? Our need to connect makes us polarized, uh, right? Because you create this sort of in-group versus this out-group. Um, and you say, I'm going to do whatever I can to protect the group. Um, our connections online make us targets. They make us nodes in the propaganda game. Something that is particularly nefarious about propaganda is that it appeals to positive character traits. What? What do you mean? Like our love of country or our desire to make the world a better place or most often, it seems, the need for things to be fair and just. Now, those are good feelings. And propaganda sort of touches our hard wiring. It can take good intentions and turn them into bad actions. So how do we change it? I get Jennifer's point that we have to first know when we are being exploited and then turn it off. But isn't there a better solution? Are people in power in this supposed beacon of democracy, the United States, capable of doing anything to stop propaganda? John says, as of right now, not really. 
We need better laws and we need better enforcement and better supervision. And we don't have it. And so as a result, the power of the White House grows and grows because the number of tools they have, social media tools, for example, are now growing exponentially, while the number of journalists who actually cover government, legitimate journalists, is decreasing. And so the balance of power is changing. And that's a problem. It's a big problem. And this makes me think of the fact that more and more often, most of us are not getting our news directly from the news outlet, but it's being pushed to us on social media. Like things that are suggested, hey, you might like this on Instagram. Right, or YouTube or Twitter. Or Facebook or TikTok. Always TikTok. TikTok is so good at figuring out who you are and what you believe and what you want to be exposed to, that it's essentially a confirmation bias machine. Everything about that algorithm is designed to feed you information that you already agree with and not to feed you any information that you don't agree with. <laughs> so that's a problem. And, and in a world where the government has so much information power, propaganda power, we have to be prepared to think critically about the people we like because of the potential of bias and not let ourselves be led down a path simply because it sounds good or appeals to something that we actually already believe, but maybe needs more scrutiny. All right, Hannah, look at your card. Six of diamonds! <laughs> How did I do it? It was on top of the stack. You got it. Well, you know what? It's so funny. That's it for Propaganda today on Civics 101. This episode is made by me, Nick Cappadice, with you, Hannah McCarthy. Thank you. Thank you. Christina Phillips is our senior producer, and Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. If you like what you're hearing, we have hundreds of episodes of Civics 101 on all kinds of topics. Everything from the basics of the three branches of government to the history of propaganda to how much the president really controls the price of gasoline. You can find our entire catalog of episodes for free at civics101podcast.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.